I'm sure that uh, he'll have a place in the back of the sanctuary for their homework to be turned in. Uh, I believe he had said and mentioned that uh, he had some things he wanted you guys to do. Uh, fortunately, I'm the good teacher, right? So I don't, um, I don't give homework out. Um, so you guys should be fine. And uh, it'd be nice that, uh, that you can have that memory that will hold you close. I, I, specific, I listened to the message you guys uh, listened to last week, and I was really, um, it was really amazing to hear the way that uh, Tom was able through the, obviously, inspiration of the Holy Spirit to link um, the marks on uh, Christ's hands and feet um, in that way that he did last week. So if you weren't here this last Sunday and you get a chance to hear what Tom said, I encourage you to you can look up on our Facebook page and find the link and hear the message. I know it uh, will definitely bless your soul. It blessed mine while I was away, and, um, and I appreciate uh, Tom filling in for me. Uh, for, the, for those of us that are here this morning, I appreciate uh, also what Mike was saying about the insert. Um, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Exodus. That's where we're going to be this morning as uh, we start a new series. Uh, be Exodus chapter 3. Um, if you don't have your Bibles and you can't reach one that's underneath your um, uh, seat, uh, there is the... Uh, uh, I, did, I do print out the scripture that we're going to be talking about in the bullets and insert. Um, so you get to do that. So every Christmas, it's always a challenge to come up with a... Uh, a, a new and interesting way of looking at the uh, Christmas story. Uh, one of my favorite series I ever did at Christmas was Christmas Time with Jonah, and um, we went through the prophet Jonah, which you would think Christmas and Jonah, that's not, uh, that's not a Christmas message, and um, I would disagree. We had a good time, but uh, we're not in Jonah this week. We're actually this month. We're going to be dealing with um, uh, a topic that I've, I think is an incredibly important to- topic that is understated in the church, and I think it's something that we need to to, um, to address and deal with. It's going to be the concept and topic of the holiness of God. Um, one of my favorite preachers who passed away this year, R.C. Sproul, wrote a book and a series that really charted the course of his entire ministry called The Holiness of God. And when I first read that book many years ago, it really changed my perspective on not only Isaiah and Isaiah 6, but also in the understanding of what it means um, to be holy and what it means when we start talking about God's holiness. But at the crux of this, the very core of it, and, this, and the message title this morning is, is what is God like? I think that's where we're going to start off with. This question, if we ask ourselves, what is God like? I think it's an, an important question because that leads us to the next question, question is, what kind of a God is he? How can we expect him to act towards us and towards all created things? And I know when we start asking these questions, where some of you are already a little uncomfortable. You're thinking, isn't this getting close to maybe possibly sacrilege? Are we getting into something that might be considered heretical when we're asking God these questions? And I don't agree with that. I think that this is not an academic question. This is a question that each one of us is asking whether we realize it or not. Because when we start talking about what God is like, we're actually reaching into the depths of our soul and our spirit, and we're asking these questions because we desperately want to know, because these things will affect our life, our character, and the destiny of not just us, but our families as we move forward. And I think when we ask these questions in reverence, sought in humility, I can't imagine God being upset Because it is his desire for us to be occupied with knowing him more, with understanding him, with loving him. One of the chief aims of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to to love God and enjoy him forever. 
And I think it's important for us as we seek to know him more to ask these questions. And that leads us right into the kind of God that we want to talk about this morning. I'm convinced, and I do believe this, one of the main reasons why we have such a hard time dealing with this current culture that we live in, where sin seems to run rampant. And I know as a pastor, it's one of the things that I look at quite a bit is not just the sin in our community, in our nation, in our, in our states, but also the sin in our church. I think that, that one of the reasons why we have a hard time describing the gravity and the destructive nature of, of our own sin is because we as, as Christians have a weak and an immature view of what the holiness of God really means. If you think about it, when we talk about salvation to begin with, we're talking about asking people to repent of their sin. But now we're getting into an age, we used to be in the age of the postmodern age. That was where I was growing up. But now theologians tell me we've moved past this postmodern state into a post-truth place, a place where truth no longer has the relevancy and the strength that it did before. And in this world where truth can be manipulated, twisted, and shaped to fit your own personal desires, how can we possibly show someone that sin leads to greater sin? How can we show someone that sin will leave them, off, leave them worse than where they started? How can we let them know that even the health of our body can be affected by this sin in our lives? How can we show them that the general unhappiness in the life of an unrepented sinner that doesn't know Jesus Christ is truly an unhappy state that's because of the sin in their existence. We can't do that without a good and amazing view, a, a proper view, if you will, of the holiness of God. You see, we can show an unbeliever many problems of, that sin about sin that may mean very little to them in the grand scheme of life unless we can really show them in light of what it means to be a holy God. And I think in order to do this, we will return, if we will, hopefully, the church itself as a whole can return to this gospel that clearly represents and passionately communicates to a world that's lost and going to hell that the God we serve is holy beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And I think that's where we are this morning. Because this holiness shines forth from heaven. It bathes us with a light and a love that permeates and penetrates to us in the deepest, deepest part of our life. The holiness of God demanded that Jesus deal with the sin in the world. You know, we often talk about the cross. And we often talked about what Jesus did on that cross. But the thing that we need to remember is this gospel message that we're teaching people about. The love and mercy of grace of Jesus Christ begins with his holiness and his righteousness. Because his holiness and righteousness demanded that he go to the cross for our sins. Because the only way we can step into heaven is through him. And so his holiness demanded that he go to the cross. But the beautiful thing is the gospel message doesn't just center on the holiness. There's an intersection there at the cross. Because although he, the, his holiness demanded that he went there, it was the love that he had for us that made him want to go. And that's the intersection that we're going to be dealing with in the next few weeks as we start talking about the holiness of God, as we look at what it means to truly be holy. So I think this is one of the problems that we have. We live in this world that seems to be doing its best job in every single corner of our culture, of our society, to eliminate the faintest idea of what holiness really means. They do this from the, right down to the very roots 
We're no longer in a day where the idea of intimacy between a man and a woman is considered only sacred in a marriage. We've gone past the day where even marriage itself was thought to be a holy institution. We're in a whole new world now. And it's not a world that I enjoy. And when I open up God's word and I look at what holiness really means, I think that as a church, we've lost a few steps. In our desire to reach the lost or just to become conforming to the culture or whatever it is that we do, we have taken major steps backwards. And now we're lagging behind the culture instead of leading it. And now we need to ask ourselves, how can we effectively minister to the people outside this building? You know, I was talking to Jimmy Stewart. He came down and preached a few, he preached a while ago. We need to have him back. I was uh, enjoying talking with him. And he was saying to me, if you look at the people in this building, you know, we're here every Sunday. And we know about this building. We know where it's at. But have you ever thought about all the people that drive past this building all week long and every Sunday? There's a reason they don't pull in the driveway and come in and sit here. For every person, there's a different reason. But I think one of the biggest reasons is, is we as a church are not communicating what it means to serve a holy God. And so this morning, I want to turn your attention to one of the first places that we see the word holiness described and talked about in Scripture. We find that in Exodus chapter 3. I did put in your bulletin um, just a few verses before then because I think it's important that we not only look at the holiness of God, but we also look at what leads up to the event that Moses is about to encounter with his uh, time with God. So in verse 23, chapter 2, just a few verses before, I'm going to start reading there. And now it came about in the course of those days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed. Because of the bondage, and they cried out, and then their cry for help, because of their bondage, they rose, because of their bondage, rose, that cry rose up to God. And so God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as we spoke of this morning with the children and the candles. And that leads us to verse 1 in chapter 3. At this time, it's almost as though the scene is changing, and God is bringing us back into focus to his servant, Moses. And he says, now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to, the, to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he also said, I am the God of your father, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. And when Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and bring them up from the land 
from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression of which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore now come, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now I know the story goes on and and I'd love to be able to spend more time in that, but the focus I really want to look at is the first part of this. And I think this is where we begin to look at what what holiness really is. And it's not what the world says. The world likes to give us the idea that holiness means that we should shun everything that's fun. They think that holiness is, 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 means that we're to, to cross our arms and scowl at anybody that might possibly you know, disagree or, or try to have some fun in front of us. They think sometimes it means wearing robes or stiff clothes and, and sit back and be really stoic and not really do anything. Sitting for long periods of time, possibly reading big, thick books of theology. Reality, holiness is far from that. Holiness is something that goes well beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And we start looking at the understanding of who God is and this holiness concept. We need to get something start or out right in the beginning, and that is that we don't really understand what this word means. The word holiness, that, uh, in fact, holy, the word that is used in, chapter, in, in this particular chapter, in verse 5, is a word in Hebrew meaning kadesh. And this word is an interesting word. If you actually chase it through Scripture in the Old Testament, it has some really interesting different dynamics. But the one thing that we understand about this is that we don't really understand it. We know that that the word holiness is actually a separateness. It's it's being a part. It's, It's something that we cannot possibly comprehend. And the more that we try to think about what holiness means and we try to understand it, the less we really do. See, that's the challenge, really, because the moment we think we've got a handle on it, we've actually changed it. We have altered it with our own minds to make it fit our own ideas. See, that's what humankind likes to do, and this is one of the challenges we have as a church to try to teach the holiness of God to a world that doesn't understand what holiness is, because as soon as we try to explain it, we put it in terminology that makes it less than it really is. And as human beings, we try to shape God to fit our belief system. And as soon as we do that, we actually have created an idol. And you look in Romans chapter 1, it talks quite a bit about that. You know, it's easy to see idols as statues that were created that, that by man, and we say, oh, that must be an idol. But the reality is that we can create a God of our own liking and choosing, very simple. We can even use it with Scripture. And, and, I, and I tell you, this is the challenge we have when we study Scripture. A lot of people, people think when we study Scripture, that means that we memorize and memorize and memorize. And it's nice to be able to have verses to pull out at a moment's notice whenever there's a situation in your life. But to have a deeper meaning of what that verse really means is different than memorizing it. One of the things that we're doing with our Awana kids is we're not just having them memorize Scripture, we're asking them what it means. Because we want them to know not just the words themselves, but what the meaning behind the words are. 
And as we start to study this, we see that there are some things going on here in Moses' life. And I think it's important that we see this because we need to understand what Moses understood. See, it was vital for Moses to understand the holiness concept. And that's what we're seeing here in the very first few verses of chapter 3. It was vital for Moses to be able to understand what holiness meant. Because if you think about the task that Moses was being set in front of, he was being asked to go to a people and to a culture that was full of idols that had no Bible. Before Moses showed up on the scene, not one piece of scripture had been written. Moses originated Genesis, Exodus, all the way through the first five books of the Bible. And therefore, there was nothing. Moses had to bring the word of God to a people who lived in a culture filled with idols. Moses was not only asked them to lead them out of slavery and from under the rule of the Egyptians, but he was being tasked to deliver them, to deliver to people, uh, the people God's law. This was a huge task. And Moses was not a young man. By this time, Moses was almost, it was, wait, he was 80 years old. And look what it says here in the very first verse. It says, now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Let me stop there just for a second and look at this. Moses grew up for 40 years in the house of Egypt, in the house of Pharaoh. Now, if you read the histories of Josephus and some of the other writers of that day, they, they bring out the idea that Moses was this mighty warrior, this conquering hero, this, this general of, of excellence, and, and that may be the case. We don't really know. These are histories that were written by people long after Moses had died, and they were more uh, traditions rather than actual fact. The only facts we have are right here in front of us, and that's the Bible, written from Moses' own hands. And note here that Moses said that he was pastoring. This is his description in third person, but he's describing his life at that point. He's pastoring. And you have to understand this. As a former Egyptian, he's now tending the flocks. The Egyptians felt that the life of a shepherd was a horrible life. It was something that was antithetical to the life of an Egyptian. And no good self-respecting Egyptian would ever be caught dead being a shepherd. Okay? So Moses here, who is no longer identifying with the life of, a, of, a, of an Egyptian, he's now identifying with his true biological people, the people that he felt called to be a part of, and he's now prof- uh, working in a profession that was indicative of being Jewish, being part of the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. Notice there's something else here, that he was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Moses was 80 years old. Moses didn't have his own flock. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about the fact that Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh, surrounded by wealth and opulence and opportunity, and there was nothing that he couldn't just ask for and a servant wouldn't give it to him. And now he is living in a life in his old age in a career field that was seen as as something that he would never do, and he's living a life where he's caring for somebody else's work. In essence, he was a hired hand for Jethro. Granted, he was in the family, but this was not his. So in 40 years that he had been pastoring out there, he had not yet come to the point where he was able to buy his own. Look at the life of Jacob. Jacob had his own flocks by this point in his life. 
By this point in his life, Isaac was already well into his established life and had money and prestige and power. But this is Moses living in the backside of nowhere. A little bit earlier on, we see in verse 21 of chapter 2, we see that he had at least one son. He named the son Gershom. Gershom means, I am a stranger in this land. I am a traveler in this land. And that was Moses' commentary of his life for 40 years living in the wilderness. And you see that he wasn't even standing and, and, and caring for these sheep in the, in the actual area where his father-in-law would have had preeminence. He took his, the flock, not his flock, Jethro's flock, to the west side of the wilderness, to the far side of where he was at. He was again a stranger in this land, caring for someone else's property. And it was at this moment that the Lord chose to speak to him. For 40 years, he was humbled in the wilderness. And for 40 years, he was wondering why God didn't use him in his prime. For 40 years now, as he's approaching the age of 80, he's asking himself, is now the time that God's going to use me? I think, well, that, maybe he's asking that. Maybe he's not. I think when I get to be the age of 80, I don't know if I really want to keep doing what I'm doing now. I'd like to be able to sit back in a retirement home. I, I'm not a really big fan of Florida. We did go there this uh, past couple weeks, and, and it's hot. I don't like it. I'm far too fat to live in a hot climate. I realize that. <laughs> but they've got, they've got some nice retirement communities there. You know, to be able to live in these places and, and to be able to have people feed you and to clean up your house and do your laundry. I'm like, that's like, that's like a dream almost, you know? And I don't, I, you know, it, this is something that you think about. When you turn to 80, what, where do you want to be? Do you want to be in the backside of nowhere in the middle of the desert, still working hard every day? Well, maybe you do. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I know. As you, that's one of the great things about having Gary here. You know, he's, he gives us that, that, that inspiration to be able to say, this is what life can be like. You know, truth is, I don't know if this is where Moses planned to be. But as he was sitting there on the backside of nowhere, the Bible says in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in this blazing fire in the midst of a bush. Now, we don't live in a state where we have fires all that often, I think. I hope not. We've had a couple since I've been here, but I've noticed that the West Coast has a lot of forest fires. And I know now in California, when the fires are blazing, the thing is, the fires, they, start, they spark off really quickly. And if you think about this, Moses is on the edge of this mountain. He's got his sheep. He's there with him. And he sees this, this bush ignite. Now, if you know anything about bushes, you know that they don't take long to burn. And they usually are a start of something really dangerous. And as he sees this burning bush in the distance, and he notices that it's not burning up, and nothing around it is catching fire, so the sheep are safe. There's nothing that I have. He doesn't have to move the flock to safer area. Now he's looking at this like he has to do something. He's seeing something that's marvelous, but he still doesn't understand why. He doesn't understand what it is. He's not at that point. And he says, I must turn aside. I must see this marvelous sight. He gets up close, and that's when, that's when the Lord calls him. Now, I love this. He says, Moses, Moses. 
Now, for those of you that are that are very immersed in the Semitic culture in the first in, the, in this in this time period, you know very well that when you use the duplicates of words, that has special meaning, especially in Hebrew. And at this particular moment, when you're using a name, double name like that, you have you know that that's a that's a that's a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of 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 um, of, of, of a deep connection. And God is using sort of this affectionate sort of discussion with Moses to bring him into this. It's almost as though this would be the same way that his wife would call him or his sons or his daughters would say Moses or Papa. And they would use the name twice. And Moses says, here I am. And, and obviously, you know, we can make a big deal about that. But the truth is, even in the Hebrew, it's just a common way semitically to say yes so it's a great response when somebody calls your name. And then he tells him right here, he says, don't come near me. Remove your sandals, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. This is the part that I think is the most important for us. You see, we, just like Moses, are called. Are called to go to a world that is in need of what we have to offer a discussion and understanding of the holiness of God. The idea that the holiness of God is the most important thing we can talk to people about because it sets a standard that's above us and outside of us. Now, earlier in the sermon, I had mentioned that whenever we start talking about holiness, and as soon as we try to describe it in human terms, we've already altered it from the original thing because the truth is holiness means separate. It means set apart. It means different. It means something that we can, that's totally alien and foreign to anything we can understand. And to try to bring it down to human understanding, we, don't, we can't get and You say, well, pastor, you've just, you've just told me that I have to focus on holiness then you've said to me that if I focus on holiness, I'm going to get it wrong. You tell me that the only way I can tell people about Jesus and about God's love is by talking about the holiness of God. But if I do, then I'm changing it and I'm altering it. I'm, I'm confused. And all that I've said is true. Well, how can we possibly understand it? Well, see, God was under the same problem too. I mean, read through the Old Testament. If you ever get a chance, it's a great thing to do. Read through the rest. I know, it's like, yeah, if you're bored, you have nothing better to do. No, everybody should read through the Old Testament. It's not like God, you know, after Jesus came, said, you know, the Old Testament's useless. We don't need need it anymore. It's not like all he gave us was the New Testament. He gave us the Old Testament for a reason. It lays the foundation for the New Testament to build upon. And the Old Testament, he lays out the understanding of his holiness and the fact that we can't know the mind of God completely. We can only know the way he's revealed to us and what he's revealed to us. And as we look at this, and as we say, when he says, he says to Moses, I'm holy, and I am so holy that my presence here sanctifies and and makes this ground holy, so much so that if you walk any closer with your shoes on, you are going to be in serious sin. Now, I've had preachers say, well, does that mean that we should preach barefoot? No. Maybe. I've had uh, individuals that have come through, uh, through our ministry at times that have said that, may, that the only way to step up here is to, is to step onto this holy stage, is to, is to be barefoot. I don't think that's the case. There are many other instances where, where the men of God were asked to come into the presence of God and they weren't required to take their shoes off. This was a situation for Moses at that time. 
And there's a reason for this. Moses needed to know and understand what the holiness of God meant. And this was something that needed to happen. He needed to recognize that. And as soon as he heard his name, as soon as the voice out of this bush told him he was standing on holy ground, then you see the introduction happens. He says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He's introducing himself. And as soon as that happened, Moses hid his face. He fell on his face. He could no longer look at even the bush burning because he did not wish to look on something that was so holy. It's a powerful, life-changing moment. Even then, Moses, I don't think, completely understood what was happening. The concept and understanding of this holiness must come first. It must be primary in everything that we do as we talk. It instructs us about who God is and and what he requires of us. Without this basic understanding, we cannot truly understand the gospel or hope to lead anyone to a holy God. Because that brings us back to the original discussion. If holiness is so out there, so alien, so foreign to our comprehension, how can we possibly bring this out to a world that needs it? God had the same problem. As you look at the children of Israel, every time that Jesus or God interacted with the children of Israel, it was always in a big way. Pillars of cloud, pillars of fire, burning bush, crossing the sea, all these great, amazing things. And yet, every time they turned around, the children of Israel fell away. Every time they turned around, the children of Israel walked willingly away from God. This was a problem that God had then as he has now. But God had an answer. And this is the question, this is the, really where it comes down to it is. We may not be able to accurately describe what holiness means, but God can. And he did. And he did so in the form of his son. You see, he sent us his son. He didn't take a step back from the world and give us a theological treaty on what holiness means. He didn't take a step back and say, I'm going to show, I'm going to throw this term out there, I'm going to to shove it at you, but you're never really going to understand it and you just need to accept it. He says, I'm going to send my son to you. That's what the promise of the scripture is. And that's what we see in the gospel message starting in the book of Matthew as we see the the coming of his son. Because the moment that his son came into our life, we now have a tangible, physical way to look at the holiness of God. We can touch him, we can feel him, we can interact with him. We can read his life story and get a better understanding of what holiness personified is. It was Jesus And so if you ask me, how can we share this to a world that needs to hear it, as we begin to look at what the holiness really means in Scripture, I would suggest this, that we become intimately acquainted not only with the holiness of God, but with Jesus Christ. Know his life. Know how we can share this to a world that needs to to know it. The world will never completely understand what sin is until they understand that they are sinners. And the only way they can understand they're sinners is to know that God is not. And that he's holy. And that's the essence of the God we worship. We worship a God that is completely and 100% standing in front of us, demanding righteous behavior, holy behavior, knowing that we can't do it on our own. I've mentioned this before, 
and I know some of you, may, may come as a shock to some of you, others, I know you realize this, but I'm a sinner. I'm actually a professional. I've gone well beyond the amateur level. I'm good at it. And I know most of you in here pretty well, and I'd say most of you guys are just like me. We're sinners. And when we start looking at the idea and the comprehension and under, trying to understand what holiness is, we know that none of us will really ever get it. But the beauty of this is that even in our sinful state, Jesus came to us. One of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament is that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God needed a sacrifice. He needed a way to reconcile us, a sinful people, to the holiness that is him. And the only way to reconcile that, the only way to bring us in there is by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have in a nutshell. We don't have to pray to Mary. We don't have to look at any saints that have gone before us. We don't need to stand on on the shoulders of, of anyone else, even our own family. I read an article this morning. The scientists have come to the conclusion that it is possible for us to actually pass on memories to our children. That's weird. I sent that article to a couple of you guys because it's really a weird article. But there's a new study now. The idea that we can pass memories onto our kids. But the one thing we can't pass onto our kids is salvation. The one thing we can't pass on to anyone is the ability to enter into the kingdom of heaven and to stand, step into the throne room of God and call God Father. That's something that each man and woman has to do on their own. And the only way you're going to do that is to understand that you are a sinner that I am a sinner and that we cannot step into the presence of a holy God without something standing between us that's holy. And that's what Jesus came to do. I think in Tom's sermon last week, he brought out, you know, what's a sermon if you don't bring in Revelation? You know, I like that. That was really good. And it's true, you know, it's, it's, Revelation is the only book that we have that has, is almost all prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. I mean, there's some bits of history, but mostly it's all prophecy. It's a beautiful book. It's hard to understand. I hate to preach out of it because, man, it's just, I, I don't get it. I, I'm trying to study it the best I can, and every theologian I read has an opinion. And a lot of them are different. But the one thing I do get out of it is we have an Advent Um, that we're celebrating now, which is the coming of Jesus in real life, and we have an advent yet to come, and that's the coming of Christ the King, who will come back in power and glory and majesty and bring us all into the presence of God. But there's a scene in Revelation that has always marveled me. It's it's a scene where where the the saints, those that have, have died in persecution, that are taking their robes and washing them in the blood of the Lamb, and they're coming out clean and white. And the idea that they can put those clothes, now white, the image of purity and holiness, the idea that as it passes through the blood of Christ, it's now purified, sanctified, and holy and can put those on. And now they can stand into the presence of God knowing that they are holy because of what Christ's blood did. It's a powerful image. We know it's poetry. We know it's very, it's very image-oriented. But that's what Christ does for us, right? He says, you can't go to heaven on your own power. He says, you can't know me under your own power. He says, the only thing that you can can bring you into here is me. And I'm too holy to do that. 
So the only way you can come in is by through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're, we're talking about this. The one thing I am disappointed uh, that Tom didn't do is he didn't give, he didn't give a real good invitation. And, but I understand your mentality. We've talked about this quite a bit, and I, and I agree with you. I, I, I have nothing, nothing wrong with that. But the idea is that people need to know that every day is the day of salvation. Whether it was last week and Sunday, even though Tom said he didn't feel qualified, truth of the matter is, none of us are qualified. Only Christ is. And so if you're sitting there today and you're saying to yourself, I don't know if, if my place in heaven is secure. I don't know if this life of sin that I've been living is the best thing for me, but it's all I know. If you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking to yourself, what do I do to change my path so I can set my feet in the direction of heaven? Some of you are parents, and you're asking yourself, I may not be able to pass on memories to my kids, but how can I lead my kids to the gates of heaven? We do it by example. And it begins here this morning. In a few moments, we're going to open up the altar. We're going to ask you to come down front. We're going to ask you to, to if, you, if the Lord is moving in your heart and your minds, and, and you so desire to come down front, there's a lot of things you could do at this altar. You can come down front and admire the, the poinsettias and the, the wonderful candlework and the decorations that Miss Ann and her daughter um, did a good job putting out this week. That would be a one reason to come to the altar. Another reason might be that, that you feel a need to lay your burdens before the cross. The Bible says to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. And so just being able to unburden ourselves, to be able to throw our anger, our frustration, our, our heartache onto the altar and say, Jesus, I can't bear this anymore. And to have him hear the, speak the words to us, I'm going to help you bear those burdens. He says that, that my burden is light because I'm going to help you bear it. Another thing you can do here at the altar is maybe the Lord's leading you to, to make a decision about where you're going to church more fully. I know we don't talk about this near enough, and I know Bill Molesky's not here. He's, he's down in, in, in the warm country of somewhere, Nevada, Las Vegas, so it doesn't matter. Um, and I know Bill normally handles a lot of that, but the truth is, just because Bill's not here doesn't mean you can't join the church. But in the end, what it comes down to it is, each and every one of us needs to have an altar experience. Each and every one of us has to have a moment where we step in front of a holy God and we say, I can't do it. I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I'll never make it to heaven on my own. Lord, help me. Each and every one of us needs to make that decision to turn away and repent from our sins. And each and every one of us must take a moment to say, God, I believe that your son died on the cross for me. I believe that he laid for three days in the tomb. I believe that you rose him from the dead and he is now seated at, the right, at your right hand. And Father, I thank you for that gift and I ask that you would give me your Holy Spirit so that I might understand you more. Every one of us has to ask that. So this morning I'm going to open up the altar I'm going to ask you guys to come. And as we bow our heads and, and prepare to pray. Lord, I, I just ask that you will feel moved, not by my words, but by the Spirit of God as he has spoken to you this morning. Father, I know this is a hard discussion to talk about holiness. 
And I know we could spend months and months and months and never really plumb the depths of your attributes and your holiness. And I know, Father, that this is a sticky area because the moment we start trying to define it, it's going to alter the reality. But Father, I don't feel like it's something that we should run from. I think it's something that we as a church need to embrace, that we need to have a more stronger view of what it means to be holy and, Father, what it means to serve a holy God. Father, I ask that you will guide our understanding as we seek to draw closer to you in the coming weeks, as we seek to celebrate this Advent season where we, we remember the birth of your Son. But none of us really believe that that Jesus was born on the back end of December. Because we know that you didn't put a date in your word. But Father, we know that your son was born on a day. And this is as good a day as any to worship and celebrate. And as we remember the anniversary of this great event, Father, I ask that you'll not let us get caught up in the in the trappings of the season. Not get caught up in the commercialism of the season. That we might focus on what it was and what it is to serve a holy God. And just as Moses, who saw a great sight of a burning bush that didn't burn, Lord, I ask that we as a church here in First Baptist Kenai that we will be your burning bush. That the number of people that drive in front of this church every Sunday morning and for whatever reason they don't pull in the driveway, they don't come into the building. Father, they might see something different about this building, about the people in here and that we might be that first introduction to your holiness that we might burn brightly, that we might see your kingdom expand, that we might see many souls come to know you, that we might see your baptistry be overflowing and filled, that we might be able to see a movement begin that transforms the peninsula, the state, this region of our country, that we might be a shockwave that is heard all and felt all around the world. Not our power, but yours. And Father, we ask that your son this morning was lifted up and lifted up so high that all men might be drawn to him. And Lord, it's not in our power that we ask this. We ask this in yours. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, we ask that you draw them to your altar that they might come to know you. As we open up this time of invitation, Father, we ask you to move in our hearts. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.